Two and a Half Admins, Episode 70. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again for our Christmas AMA special. But before we get into that, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is a panel. FreeBSD ARM64 flexibility with Ampere. Yeah, so this is actually a video from a conference. Yeah, it's a panel with ARM, Ampere, and uh, my business partner and I talking about ARM and FreeBSD and what cool stuff you can do there and what some of the advantages are. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. So we had all sorts of questions for this AMA. Some of them are tech, some of them are not. Let's start with Craig. He says, besides anything computer related, what do you guys do as a hobby? Could be now, from the past, or what you hope to do. I'm looking for hobby ideas that do not have anything to do with a computer. In the past, I uh, used to be fairly big into, I hesitate to say, martial arts. Uh, let's let's go with combat sports. Uh, I took some Aikido, bummed around various dojos, did some wrestling. That's been quite some time ago, though. That was, you know, in my 20s, maybe a little in my early 30s. I also used to be really big into working on cars, uh, always used to do all the maintenance on all my own vehicles, but it's been a while since I've done that either. These days, I have a lot less free time, and I'm a family man. My kids have finally gotten old enough to, you know, really do stuff that's fun for all of us. So these days, my extra professional stuff is mainly hiking with the kids, playing chess with the kids, you know, finding stuff to do like that. When I was younger, I liked train sets. Still have a couple. Really need to find a space to set those up again. But more recently, uh, definitely hiking and stuff. Traveling was also a thing. It was kind of related to computers was usually the reason I was traveling, but it was always take a couple extra days and and get to go hiking in places or also just like botanical gardens. Some of the ones I saw in like France and Japan and so on are just really nice spaces and places to be or even like the, I think it was called the Tier Garden in Berlin. Just, you know, you're in the middle of the city, but there's these quiet paths through some bushes or whatever uh, where, you know, the noise of the city kind of falls away and it's just a nice quiet place to be. That's a hobby that it doesn't have to cost a whole lot. You'd be amazed how many cool places there are almost certainly around where you live that you've never heard of before because you just haven't looked for them. And now that everything's online, like in my own state, I live in South Carolina in the U.S., and uh, there's a site called sctrails.net that literally is just an index of all these places you can go hiking. Um, it's organized, you know, by some types of feature. Like if you specifically want to go on trails with waterfalls, you can filter for that. You know, you can look for things that are within a certain radius of like where you live. I've found places that I didn't know about, you know, despite having lived here for 20 years that way. Uh, the kids and I recently went to a place called Peachtree Rock Preserve. It's less than 15 miles from the house. It's actually got a small waterfall there. Uh, just this amazing little completely free nature preserve. You just park your car on a dirt road and, and walk in and, uh, you know, see all this cool terrain that even if you are a, more of a country kid than a city kid, you don't necessarily get to see every day. Uh, it's something different, something new. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things, too, that, like, if it's just you by yourself, some people are the kind of people that are just like, yeah, that sounds awesome, just me and myself alone wandering out in the woods, that sounds like a great time. Other people are like, well, that doesn't sound so great. But, you know, when you have some friends to do it with, or, you know, better yet, kids, I tell you, having kids, once they hit double digits, just opens your eyes again to a whole range of things that, you know, maybe you kind of got jaded to, but you get to see them all over again from a fresh perspective. Yeah, with, when the pandemic started, we looked into it a bit more. 
because it was one of the only things you could go out and do. And we kind of specifically targeted, there's a bunch around the Albion Falls here. So uh, Hamilton, where I live, is is known as the city of 100 waterfalls. But what we went towards one of the bigger ones, and it happens to be on this system called the Bruce Trail, which basically covers the entire Niagara Escarpment. So you can walk from like the U.S. border at Niagara Falls for like hundreds of kilometers through parts of Ontario on all these like properly maintained and marked trails. And so they're free, although you can join as a member for like $50 a year or something and help, you know, keep all the trail markings maintained and so on. But they have this huge trail network where you can like walk between entire cities if you want. Like you can do like camping type hiking where you'd actually cover long distances if you want. Or, you know, you can drive, park up in this parking lot and just walk around some waterfalls for an hour or two and see a bunch of interesting stuff. For me, it's being a musician. I play guitar quite a lot. I also make a little bit of electronic music, although that obviously does involve computers and recording any sort of music, really, unless you've got loads of expensive analog gear and stuff, it's going to involve computers. But you can just play guitar for the sake of it, just on your own. And uh, that can be quite challenging. Although to learn, you're probably going to need a computer in the first place to get YouTube uh, videos about it or whatever. But uh, maybe you could print out some chord boxes or tabs or something if you wanted to do that. Okay, David says, when do you think 8K TVs and monitors will become affordable and common? What about beyond that? Will resolutions keep getting bigger, or will something new like VR, AR, or even something that hasn't been invented yet eventually replace screens? My best guess would be three to four years before 8K, you know, becomes as commonplace as 4K is now. Just kind of extrapolating on the time frame of, you know, how long we saw it go from 720p being what most people had to 1080p and then 1080p to 4K. I don't personally think there's going to be a big push to go higher resolution than 8K, most likely, because by the time you get to 8K, you know, even with like an 80 inch TV, you're really approaching the point where you've got to be like 18 with perfect vision to even tell the difference. Uh, There are a lot of other components to image quality that aren't tied directly to resolution that we still have a lot more room to improve. I think the bigger things to come are going to involve, you know, some of the other technologies that we've seen change in screens. Like if you don't have a QLED, you know, quantum LED TV right now, you would be amazed the difference in the dynamic range of color, like how black the blacks can be compared to, you know, how bright in a scene with elements of both on the same screen. Now it's possible to have an all black, like a nighttime image that you don't see like, you know, the the horrible blocky pixelation that you used to, you know, in digital broadcasts on very dark scenes. And also you can have a scene that's like daylit with really dark shadows and the black is really black because you don't get a whole lot of backlight bleed through. But there's still a lot more improvement to be made there. And I think that's probably the better place to look for like really big image quality improvements. As to the other thing beyond that, I think, yeah, miniaturization is really going to be where it's at. As you see these technologies become a lot more lightweight and lower power consumption to make the equivalent of headphones for your eyes a lot more feasible than they are right now. My first thought on that was, what do I want 8K for? Like, at my 4K monitor, I'm running things at like 150% scaled. And it's like, all right, if I go to 8K and I'm running it at 2X or more, then what am I gaining? Like, I'm not actually getting any more screen real estate because as I get older, I'm going to need things to be bigger and bigger, not smaller and smaller. And so to a certain point, there will be advantages. But I agree with Jim that 
improving the latency and avoiding the blur and the and all the other things that make up image quality are probably where I'm going to care a bit more about that stuff than trying to go higher or higher resolution. I remember the days of having really low resolutions where, you know, going from 800 by 600 to 1024 by 768 was like all that extra space I could have. And, you know, going from a 14 inch monitor to a 19 inch monitor on my computer. And it's like, oh, I can actually see multiple things at a time now. But I think going much beyond the 4K that I have now, I don't know that I'll get much more usable screen real estate out of it just because the monitor would have to be bigger. And if it gets any bigger, I'm going to have to turn my head to see the other part of the screen. <laughs> yeah, I don't think 8K is ever really going to matter much for like computer monitor stuff, like, you know, something at a desktop scale. Where it can make a difference is when you're talking about, you know, like I said, like 85-inch TVs. I went to CES in 2020 and, you know, saw the latest and greatest 8K stuff. And on a high-quality QLED TV, even at like 65-inch scale, you really can't tell the difference between 4K and 8K very well. Once you hit 85 inch, yeah, now it gets to the point where if you're really super picky, there is a visible difference. But even then, like you need to be really picky to care much about it. It's a much smaller difference than the leap from, you know, and, and I use leap with scare quotes here from 720p to 1080p was 720p to 1080p is a visible difference, but it, it it's that's already not that big of one. I don't know that many people that get super excited about 1080p, but like, oh God, I can't tolerate 720. And the difference between 4K and 8K visually is smaller than that. And, you know, a lot of that's going to come down to the source material too. Like we're going to see better video compression at some point where, you know, you can actually have an 8K quality video that isn't a massive file too, right? But specs sell TVs. And so once 16K becomes a thing, they'll want to try and sell you a new TV based on, oh, it's, it's 16K, that's that's twice as good as an 8K TV. Oh, and some people will fall for that. And it's like why it's called a 4K TV, not a 2048P or whatever it was. Yeah. Counterpoint for the old timers out there, specs don't always sell. Betamax didn't carry the day, VHS did. Well, and like, honestly, the TV in my living room is like a 45-inch 1080P. It's like I don't have much content where I'm going to care about the extra resolution from 4K and I don't have much content that's that high quality. And even if I did, I wouldn't care really. It's like it's sorry, it down reses to 1080p and it looks better. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com 25A. Okay, Martin says, what is the biggest fuck-up you've witnessed, and what did you learn from it? Now, before you two start with your IT stories, 
Let me give you my answer. And that is, I have seen companies, not in IT, just in, in other areas, I've seen companies make the mistake of keeping unreliable people employed and continuing to give them business as contractors and not realizing that unreliable people need to be just discarded and just don't have anything to do with them. And so that's what I learned from it. And it's not even just once. I've seen this time and time again. I've seen unreliable people not being fired when they should be. Just because it's more hassle to find a replacement, basically. Yes, exactly. But I think that you have to. You have to accept when someone is unreliable. And that unreliability can be them turning up late or not at all or being bad at communication, whatever it is, or doing their job badly or whatever. But if they are not reliable, just have nothing to do with them. That's what I've learned. Well, you said witnessed, not a personal fuck up. So I'm going to save one particular war story and I'm going to go back to one. I I think I may have mentioned this on the show before. But uh, I had one particular client who uh, hired an unusually ham-handed IT person and asked me to give this rather ham-handed person basically a, you know, a cookbook, a, a recipe for spinning up new VMs from a gold image. And so I you know, did my usual thing of follow the steps through you know, five or ten times and make absolutely certain that even with my brain turned off, everything worked exactly right. And I gave this person this recipe for beginning with a gold image of you know, Windows Server, pre-installed, all of the drivers installed, and a few you know, company-specific applications installed, and then sysprepped and generalized and ready to join to the domain. And that recipe involved replicating, ZFS replicating, that gold image onto a new data set then using vert manager to to wrap the xml definition around that data set and have a new functional machine now there was nothing wrong with the recipe itself but this unusually ham-handed person who i had given it to for some reason decided when following this recipe to use a mission critical existing production vm as the target for the replication And because they did this, they not only wiped out that machine, because my recipe called for using ZFS replication rather than a simple, you know, CP or MV or what have you of the image file, it blew that image all the way back to gold and destroyed all of its snapshots on production. So there was nothing to recover from. This unusually ham-handed person also elected to say nothing to anybody about what he had done and just sort of dissemble to his boss about why production was down all day long. So I didn't get involved until we only had two hours left to stop his screw-up from not only having completely wiped out production, but also replicating not just to the on-site hot spare, but all the way off-site to the disaster recovery. As a result of that, I ended up, because this was a very large system, I couldn't get everything replicated back off the wire from the uh, off-site backup that was on the other end of the continent in time for, you know, a proper recovery time objective. So I actually ended up having to have the company operating for about a week across their site-to-site VPN from the wrong data center from the backup image that I just spun up in production on the other side temporarily, while I slowly trickle replicated that VM back from the DR site into prod over about a week at a rate that the bandwidth would support. And then I could finally decommission the one in DR and bring it back up in prod. And uh, yes, I did learn something from that. And the lesson that I learned was never ever leave 
a snapshot chain that goes all the way back to the gold image when you're doing this. Because if you do, it makes it possible for somebody to just replicate on top of it and blow everything all the way back to the Stone Age. To be fair, this also goes back to, you know, Joe's whole lesson learned thing, which I also learned from that to uh, be a little bit more direct in my recommendations to clients when they have somebody who is a certain degree of untrustworthy to be like, look, you should not let this person have the keys to this particular castle. I do not trust them with that. I will not be held responsible for what they do with that. Here's what they can do if given that. And I, I, I do not believe they're that trustworthy, which, you know, it takes a certain level of chutzpah to say that, to just be like, look, you can't trust your employee that far, but that's the job sometimes. Yeah, I don't know that I can think of any good ones that I witnessed. I know we've covered a couple of interesting ones on TechSnap in the War Story segments back in the day, like the uh, data center where its diesel generator was behind an electric gate. And so when we had the great Northeast blackout in like, what was that, 2001 or whatever? That's Facebook and the data centers all over again, isn't it? Yeah. Basically, the, the fuel truck shows up late after they were completely out of gas and they couldn't open the gate in order to let the truck fill the fuel tank because it was an electric gate. And I guess my own story, I think the biggest one was just my very first server I was sysadmitting was a shell server that we, you know, people rented out accounts on it. And somebody had tried some kind of Red Hat exploit on it. And it obviously didn't work because it was FreeBSD. But it involved having a symlink with weird characters in it that linked to Slash and to do some kind of like path uh, exploit. And so I was just cleaning up after them. And I, I used the tab complete on the name of the symlink because it had a bunch of characters I couldn't type and the tab complete would auto escape them correctly. But being tab complete on a symlink that was a directory it put the trailing slash on when I did the tab complete. Mm. So when my RM now didn't delete the symlink, but deleted the target of the symlink, which was slash. <laughs> so unnecessary use of RM-R on what was a single file was the first mistake. And the second one was the trailing slash. And I'm like, this is taking unusually long. I'm deleting one <laughs> file. It shouldn't take long. And then I see the message go by. It's like not deleting sbin slash init because it has the immutable flag. And I'm like, oh, shit, Control-C, Control-C. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had Bacula backups, so I started to restore immediately and got, because I think all of slash bin and all of slash etc were gone, and it just got to sbin, I think, is about where it was. And so Bacula threw all those files back, and the machine I kept the machine up the whole time. And, you know, customers' processes kept running. They wouldn't have been able to log in, and if they were already logged in, bin ls wasn't there. <laughs> But, uh, you know, an hour later, all the deleted files were restored and everything was fine. But when I realized what had happened was the first time I just like felt my whole face turn red. It, 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 like, I think actually all the blood was probably draining out of my face, but suddenly it felt like my face was on fire when I kind of realized what I had just done. You know, I can't remember the exact details, but I do remember at one point I made a very similar mistake in my FreeBSD days. And I ended up removing, if I recall correctly, I, I think it was SBIN mm -hmm. in its entirety and all kinds of things, you know, started not working. And like, like you said, you know, the, the existing processes that had open file handles were fine because they still had open file handles, but you could do very little with the machine. And I remember actually doing a clean install of, I think it was FreeBSD 4.10 on another machine just to have a complete working SBIN to literally SCP from that one into the one that I'd hosed up and everything worked again fine after that. And I was just kind of like, 
Whew, glad nobody saw that. Yeah, I had to use, so in FreeBSD, there's a directory called slash rescue that contains hard links of like 50 something binaries to one big file. It's basically kind of uh, like BusyBox. So it's got all the basic tools like LS, MV, CP, et cetera, but statically linked for one giant binary that's statically linked version of all of them kind of mixed together. And having to use that in order to reconstruct some of the files and, and get things into a working state where I could uh, and restore stuff. And you know, for Bacula, it was just lucky that the the file daemon process was already in memory and running because that's how you take the backups in. So it was able to to write the right files to restore things. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins and sign up for a seven day free trial the on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands config scripts and everything you need to get the most out of each course another standout feature is the accountability coaching service available to all learners with a subscription which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals and will check in with you to keep you accountable so start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Okay, John says, to what extent do you plan for the future versus living for today, hardware and software-wise, and in your general lives? How has this changed since COVID? I think on the hardware side... Part of it would be just because of when I was, you know, getting into computers, they changed very, very rapidly. And so I started to learn to not necessarily put too much effort into, oh, I'm going to buy this place so I can upgrade it later. Because usually by time that option came up, there was an even better option and I was limiting myself or it would have been cheaper if I had just waited and, and bought an even faster computer that had the, that feature later. So uh, with my hardware, I tend not to think too much about what I'm going to do to it or like how I'm going to expand it in the future because by the time I get there, my needs will have changed or what the best hardware for this or whatever will have changed. So I don't say, you know, be blind to what you're going to do in the future, but focus on what's going to solve your problem now and in the immediate future. And if you're talking two years down the road, then, you know, things will change enough by then that you're probably going to want to reevaluate decision anyway. So don't spend extra money on it now. We agree, but we phrase it very differently. Uh, when I buy hardware, it's you could say it's always for the future because I can't not realize now the short shelf life of hardware. So when I buy a system, I'm not buying a system for today. I'm buying it for the next, you know, N years that I expect to use it before I replace it. Now, this is sharply different from when I was younger. I used to buy systems with the idea that like, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the philosopher's axe, right? There's this old uh, question, like, you know, if, if the handle on your axe breaks and you replace the handle, and then the head of the axe breaks and you replace the head, is it still the same axe? So, like, my computers always used to be the philosopher's axe, right? Like, you know, the case might be the same for 15 years, but every part gradually changes one at a time. And when I buy that part, you know, it's like this really one fast part that I'm very excited about at that time. Like, oh, I got the newest, shiniest GPU, like the most that I could afford. And it would basically be a thing of I was overspending really badly on hardware because I would get like the most GPU that I could afford when all I had to buy was the GPU. And you never buy the whole system at once. You never really look at the whole system price. 
But then when I got to the point professionally where I started, you know, building systems for customers and, and, you know, replacing systems for customers, I very quickly came to realize, you know, this doesn't make sense. You actually get a much better experience. You spend less money and get faster computers by just buying the right computer for a certain expected life cycle. Like you say, well, I want my machine to last me three years or I want my machine to last five years, maybe even seven, depending on what your needs are. And you don't do much in the way of piecemeal upgrades. You use it until it is no longer a sensible thing for you to use. And if you plan it properly, generally what you can do is you can do a pretty quick replacement. Well, at least I can. Um, If you have professional contacts or if you're good at, you know, selling things on your local marketplace or at the lug or whatever, very frequently what you'll find is you can build a machine every two years for yourself and you can sell the old one for, you know, a really good percentage of what it costs you to buy the new one because it's still a nice machine. Whereas when you do the old philosopher's axe thing, like I used to, you are just throwing that money right down the rat hole and you're never getting it back because by the time you're done with a component, it's literally garbage. And also when you do it that way, it tends to be a case of, well, you know, always your computer is like half garbage. And I still see, you know, I see a lot of people talking about that on forums. They're like, they've got the, you know, the GTX 3080, but they're rocking, you know, like a 2009 era, you know, CPU. And they're like, is it time to upgrade this or not yet? And the other thing to realize about that, why you really want to think about these life cycles is because if you spend all this money on the absolute most top flight CPU or GPU, you look at the the difference in how long it stays like really fast. It's not long at all. A year after you spent twice the money on, you know, the absolute fastest GPU than the one one rung down below it a year later, there's effectively no difference between those two. So you spend all that extra money to have the bragging rights like right now, whereas a year or two down the road, you know, if you were to sell both of those cards, you know, on the open market, there would be almost no difference in price between the two of them because both of them are still good cards, but old, you know, that this is the fastest thing ever right now is gone. So either you're spending so much money that you're just constantly replacing everything to be on the very top end of the curve with very little performance difference between that and something reasonably priced well below that price wise. It's just, no, it's it's not a it's not a good look. Yeah, well, it's just discussing it now. I thought a bit more about it too. Um, like my last desktop, I purposely built it with a super micro motherboard that had IPMI because I knew when it retired as my desktop, it was going to go in my rack as an extra server, and so that kind of planning ahead made sense. But I guess more of what I meant is maybe don't plan ahead to to you know have forty gigabit networking in it because you know by the time you get there, you're going to want to do it differently than what you guessed you would four years before or whatever. And so, yeah, I think a lot of it is is like Jim was saying. And I think another thing that kind of falls on the same line is especially with storage, you have to plan that, all right, these hard drives are going to, you know, they have a warranty for three or five years. And that's as long as you want to keep using them, I need to set up my budget that I'm going to be able to replace all of those drives before they're that old or as they get that old. Yep. You know, I got a terrible survey thing from my natural gas company today talking about it's like, how much do you want us to increase your bill in order to for us to replace all of the our you know compressor stations that are too old? 
you know, should we put it off or should we start jacking your bill up now? And it's like, how did you not budget for the fact that like you have a compressor plant, you know, it lasts 50 years, it's 45 years old. How have you not planned for this already and don't need to, you know, jack up my bill by a significant amount all of a sudden? I think that kind of the same thing goes into computers. If you plan for a life cycle where I plan to have this computer for two years, if you get to keep using it after that, in a secondary role or whatever, that's, that's great. But if you've budgeted that, I'm going to use it for that long. And then I'm going to have saved up enough money for the next one. You're going to feel much better and be in a better place and not end up surprised. Oh, my hard drives are too old now and they need replacing because they're going to die. Even if I don't need more space, it's like, well, you knew how long they were going to last. You need to plan for that. Yeah. There's a tendency, I think, especially when you're younger to think, I bought a thing and now I have this thing and I no longer have to worry about that. And it's just unfortunately not how pretty much anything works. I mean, it, this is, it's grossly exaggerated in computers because that industry moves so rapidly, but it's true of everything, cars, houses, you name it, mm-hmm. everything degrades, everything needs maintenance. Uh, there's a Chuck Palahniuk quote from Fight Club that I really love for this. Nothing is static. Everything is evolving. Everything is falling apart. So you have to get out of this mindset of thinking, I bought this thing and now I own this thing forever and think more in terms of this is the amount of money that I have to spend to have this experience for this many years before I have to do it all over again. So you don't buy the fastest CPU you can afford right now or the fastest GPU you can afford right now. You buy the best one that you can afford to buy again in three years or five years or whatever your planned refresh cycle is. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Thank you everyone for sending in your questions. Sorry we didn't get to all of them, but uh, maybe we'll do another one at some point, maybe in the summer or something. If you want to send in your free consulting questions or feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.